Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams. This is Dart Against Humanity, episode six. Uh, what I'd like to talk about today is music discovery in the sense of how it affected what we now call Gen Xers, uh, or what we call Gen Xers. I think the problem is trying to define what a generation is going past Generation X. I feel like uh, trying to define Generation Y or Z or what the millennials are, I think that's all gone to shit because um, it's kind of an exercise in futility if you go back and check because it's hard to really put get a hold on the characteristics of a particular generation, especially if you're trying to space it out over 15 to 20 years, which is ridiculous because ever since you get to the late 90s where communications technology uh, pretty much doubled anywhere between every 12 to 9 to 6 months past a certain time because we were getting into an exponential era right around then so I feel like that changed everything and it became super hard to try to pinpoint what the characteristics of a particular generation were that grew up with the internet and then or after 2002 having it 24-7 with the advent of like cable modems and DSL what have you and I think that really just changed everything um, so I want to talk about music discovery and how it affected us the Gen Xers and how it affects how we view music now since we're kind of the older generation and we're still in charge of media in a sense even though it's changed so much that we're like being left out and pushed to the margins myself included um so again i came up with my parents records or the music that i heard at home and the music i heard at home i particularly heard through the radio now in boston that meant that i listened to well first it was the black the legacy black radio station in Boston was WILD. Uh, and then, of course, being in Boston and the South End, Lower Roxbury, uh, it's a college town. And there is a high concentration of colleges, universities, and schools of higher learning all in the city. And Boston is no different, but I grew up in the heart of the city near Roxbury. So in my neighborhood, we had... Northeastern University. Northeastern University's radio station was WRBB. Emerson College wasn't too far away. That station was WERS. Uh, there was Harvard, who had a radio station that was WHRB. But the radio station that was really popular in the city at the time was Kiss 108 FM, which starred a man named Sonny Joe White, who was also, who was also a, a DJ. He DJed at the Kicks Club and a bunch of other places. Uh, another place that was popular and um, it had the station located right in my neighborhood, uh, down the street, uh, near the Prudential. I think at one time they were in, um, they moved in near uh, Fenway Park. There were WBCN, pioneering radio station. There's books about WBCN you should read. Now, the thing you need to understand about growing up, being born in the late or mid to late 70s. And growing up during the 80s is radio was a completely different beast than it is today. You could listen to radio in the 80s and 
you wouldn't know what station you're listening to until you hear somebody come on the radio and announce what station it is or say the call sign because a lot of stations were playing the same music. This is an era of something that was close to what we could call integrated radio. It's not like that anymore. You could turn on the radio uh, and start hearing promises, promises, you know, and you don't know what station is playing it. You could be hearing Duran Duran. You could hear Pat Benatar on any station, you know, hear Cheers for Fears. You could hear uh, Madonna. Now, you had no idea what station Madonna was playing on playing on because at first when Madonna came out, uh, she was putting out white labels and nobody knew what color she was. They thought she was Puerto Rican. They thought she was black. She could have looked like Shannon. She could have liked Nocera. Nobody knew. She could look like Naomi. Nobody knows. Um, until, you know, her first videos came on on MTV. Now, mind you, in these days, nobody had cable. I need to stress this to you. So when Burning Up came on MTV, I remember being a kid and going to school and, and one of these white kids that I knew was like, hey, did you see that Madonna video? I'm like, no, what would I see a Madonna video? And, and they're like, she's white. I'm like, no way, Madonna's not white. The lucky star girl, you know? So yeah, um, that was one of the things that, you know, we had where, you just heard stuff on the radio. Phil Collins songs would play anywhere. Who cared? You know, uh, missing persons. You'd hear, you don't hear me. You don't care. You'd hear that anywhere. The motel suddenly last summer. You'd hear these songs anywhere. It didn't matter. Billy Idol. You'd think black folks love Billy Idol's eyes without a face. Okay. So the point I'm making is that there were songs that were just playing everywhere. And you didn't really know what station you were listening to until it came up later. Hall and Oates, Michael McDonald, Culture Club. Good Lord, Culture Club. Duran Duran's reflex would be getting mixed with the hot rap song of the day. Same thing with Tears for Fear's Shout. Um, if you throw on Everybody Wants to Rule the World, you think everybody wasn't singing along to that song? So, yeah. Uh, Art of Noise, Moments in Love. These were universal songs that you would hear on every radio station. Uh, Gary Newman's Cars, New Order's Confusion. Let me tell you, when I was growing up, every cheerleader, every single cheerleader, um, cheerleading team in the city had routines to Confusion by New Order, which was produced by Arthur Baker, who was a Bostonian. You know, um, so just to give you an idea of how radio was when I was a kid, you it was somewhat integrated, inter integrated. You would hear the police everywhere. You know, stuff would be mixed in. You know, Michael Jackson was super popular. Prince was just breaking barriers everywhere. Um, but also the big thing in black radio at the time was. Black radio was super, still super resistant, super resistant to rap. And incidentally, what ended this whole era, I say going into the 90s was um, the late 80s and the 90s, early 90s, was the rise of rap music and the popularity of it and its influence. Um, so I think the last gasp of integrated radio came with um, 
Jane Charles Don't Wanna Fall in Love, which I think came out, what, 1990? When it first came out, it was a white label because Jane Charles from Canada. And I guess the label, the label didn't think it was going to be big or whatever. So they pushed it as a white label. Um, when it first started getting played, it got played at, you know, black stations here and there. And it began to grow. It began to grow. And then it's expanded and it grew more and more and more. And it got added more and more and more to the point where it was a song that was big on black radio. Now, somewhere along the line, I guess the the record label heard that the song was a hit. So they put they either made a video or they had a video ready that they never put out. I'm not exactly sure. I need to find that. I need to actually find that out because I would like to do something about this really deeper. This is just what I discovered. And when the video for Jane Childs Don't Want to Fall in Love came out, suddenly uh, the song started getting added more and more to pop radio and suddenly on black radio they didn't play it as much anymore to the point where they didn't play it anymore at all and they put out a single a new single and the version that they put out which they started playing was the teddy riley remix which i will go on record as saying the teddy riley remix that don't want to fall in love is about 33 percent less funky than the original version that don't want to fall in love by jane child and I'll take that to the grave. I don't care what you say. It's, the, it's facts. It's facts, homie. Um, so I feel that that was the bridge where everything changed. Where it was like, if you're a white artist, you're going to have to come out and declare that you make R&B. This affected, uh, I say like Sheena Easton. It affected... Um, Lisa Stansfield. Uh, there was another wave of like white R&B artists that came out right afterwards, and it's like they had to be we we make R&B, whereas before it didn't matter. You know, you could just make a song and it gets accepted where it gets accepted. David Bowie's Less Dance, thirty-five years ago today, that song hit number one on the billboard hot 100 and then of course it hit number one on the dance charts but the thing is that it only peaked at number 14 on the hot on the hot black singles charts because again the hot black singles charts were super competitive but it was nothing for a song by a white artist to end up on the r&b charts nobody batted an eyelash I think like one of the only the one of the few white artists that people considered like strictly R&B was probably Tina Marie. Tina Marie got all the love in the world on the R&B charts. She, she rarely crossed over, whereas other artists could cross over. And for them, crossing over was being on the hot black hot black single charts like a Phil Collins, you know, like a Duran Duran. Duran Duran's The Reflex. My God. That song was a phenomenon on black radio. Um, Joe Jackson's Stepping Out, you know, songs like that would always, you know, hit black radio. And it wasn't like, oh, we can't play this because it's a white artist. It was like, oh, we love this. We just play it. There was no there was no afterthought. Just do it. But after that stretch happened with Jane Child's Don't Want to Fall in Love, I feel like you had to kind of declare beforehand that you were making R&B. 
And then if it crossed over, it crossed over, which is really weird. But yeah, um, coming into that era from the 90s, a lot of things switched because we're coming into the, um, the sound scan era. And once sound scan happened, and of course, you know, from March 1989 on, they finally had the, the rap charts. And the rap charts were trash because it only went to number 30. Meanwhile, the pop charts list a top 100. The R&B charts list 100. And then you have 25 bubbling under. But somehow the rap charts were supposed to stop at 30. And the thinking was early on in the late 90s. I mean, the late 80s, because 1989, March 1989. In the late 80s and early 90s where there were significantly fewer rap songs to chart their sales and their radio play because for the most part rap songs didn't get played while the sun was still up again because black radio was really resistant to rap but at the same time very few rap songs crossed over maybe like a few songs from run dmc or the beastie boys here and there or ll cool j would cross over you know occasionally later on be like a salt and pepper song like push it but the songs that crossed over are Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. They were so few and far in between that they didn't think that you had to expand the charts past 30. Because look at the, I mean, the black, the hot black albums chart stopped at 75. But there was a, the top 200 for the Billboard charts as far as albums were concerned. Which is something I discussed sooner. I mean, I, I discussed in an earlier episode. So they figured, hey, we don't really need to chart these things. But... Starting around 1990, 1991, these songs started hitting number one on the Billboard charts. Uh, it's the first song to do this should have been MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, but unfortunately, Capitol Records made the grave error of only putting out, I believe, um, vinyl, and they didn't put out CD singles or singles, so they didn't have enough um, to chart. I mean, they didn't have enough um, sales. Uh, units to mark more for the sales to go along with airplay so it could actually reach number one legitimately and the song that ended up doing it I believe is um Vanilla Ice so yeah Ice Ice Baby I think was the first rap number one on the billboard charts which is unfortunate and um so SBK Records knew that we have to put out as many formats as possible, you know, to get these unit sales to go along with the airplay. And that song actually crossed over. It got played everywhere. And I feel like a lot of the rap songs that actually did get airplay other places, people considered them novelties. Like um, De La Souls, Me, Myself, and I got that treatment. And... Incidentally, every album afterwards, no other De La Soul album sold like uh, Three Feet High and Rising. And I think it also helped it. It had the controversy behind the sampling from the, ter- the Turtles. And then there was a little MTV mini um, documentary about sampling that came out in 1989. That's neither here nor there. But when we get back to the 90s, there's a switchover happens that changes everything. And one of the one of the big things that happens too is uh, more and more people start getting cable. 
coming into 1990, 1991, cable comes into more households, more households, more households. Uh, from 1991 on, cable exploded. And what happened was they added new stations that made it so that even if you didn't have cable, you kind of needed to have it now. So uh, Nickelodeon starts its cartoon runs. You know, they have Rugrats, uh, Doug, Ren and Stimpy. Then Comedy Central comes in. Comedy Central has um, Mystery Science Theater 3000. You know, it has all, all this like it's comedy programming. So like, oh, that makes it more more like something you should have. Um, MTV started adding um, original programming. VH1 becomes more and more popular, but VH1 uh, kind of catered more to the um, adult contemporary crowd. So if you were older, VH1 was your alternative to MTV. So they were just like these. Then like later on, the Cartoon Network comes out. I think around 1992. So more and more things were happening where it was like, yo, you need to have cable. MTV introduced a show called um, Liquid Television. So it was more like if you got cable, you were getting your money's worth, especially since sports programming was more and more on cable too. So like the NBA, if you were into that stuff, you were into like, then later on ESPN2, but I think that happened in 1993, ESPN2 started, and they started um, catering to uh, Gen Xers. They started putting on um, more sports like extreme sports, skateboarding. Uh, they started doing stuff like the World's Strongest Man competition. They started putting on college basketball, more college basketball games from bigger regions, from different regions that you couldn't get on regular ESPN. So what I'm saying is that cable started to explode in the early 90s. But what cable also did was it changed the way that we interacted with um, music. Because starting in the early 90s, what we would do, and I saw this phenomenon everywhere, uh, young people would, if they had two televisions... And everybody had a VCR, or a lot of people had um, VCR TVs. That's a TV with a VCR attached. Or it's like, they're the same thing. The top part is a VCR, and you can record and everything. So they would put tapes in each one, and they would just have pause and record, just like we used to do with cassette tapes off the radio. But now they did it with the video channels. So one TV would be on MTV, and the other TV would be on BET. Now, there was a stretch of time, too, where um, BET would be on all day. You would catch all the video shows starting from, like, um, the whole run up until Video Soul. So, you have Video Vibrations. Then you have Video Soul. And then you wait for Video Soul to be over. Then it would be Rap City. And after Rap City, you had Video LP. So you would catch something on that run, but then like you would have the run on and it would be uh, your MTV raps, which was 30 minutes. And they usually spent a lot of time bullshitting and there was a lot of commercials and they would play like three videos. 
but Rap City would have played. There was this weird thing too with Rap City and and um, Yo MTV Raps where if Yo MTV Raps had a premiere, you would get the premiere. Like let's say they played uh, Check the Rhyme, so they play Check the Rhyme first on MTV, so you could have recorded it there. But they're gonna play Check the Rhyme in thirty minutes on on Rap City. And the other weird thing is that the next day, every show would play Check the Rhyme. So Video Vibrations would play Check the Rhyme. It's like trying to rub it into MTV. Like, you got one show that plays rap. We could play it anywhere, you know? And when Donnie Simpson played a rap song, you could just look at his face and tell he wasn't really into it. He was like, yeah, this is a, a trap called Quest. Check the Rhyme. And I'm just like, fam, you don't, you don't even like... You ain't even a fan. Like your your son, like your son plays that. You look in the room, like boy, what you playing? You know. So, but again, um, one of the important things about MTV was MTV had shows like 120 minutes, and they had the regular rotation. And one of the phenomenons that happened with um, music discovery is that whereas radio was no longer integrated. Um, we were exposed to albums that we normally wouldn't have heard, heard through MTV. And I think one of the explosions happened in 1993. You know, um, you would just have like 120 minutes on, you would be exposed to all this new music you haven't heard. Um, I think like 1993, Belly put out Star. Yeah, PJ Harvey, Rid, rid of Me. Um, Radiohead's debut album came out. Primus put out Pork Soda. Pork Soda. Um, Google Dolls, Cranberries, I think they put out their first album. Uh, Tools' first album came out in 93. Porno for Pyros put out Porno for Pyros. U2 had Zoo Ropa. Like, you didn't have to hit, listen to rock radio to be exposed to these things because you just saw the videos. It wasn't like you were going to change the channel. You had one channel on. One TV on one channel, one TV on the other channel. Occasionally you heard something you liked. Um, Matthew Sweet, uh, the Altered Beast album came out. So he had the video Girlfriend and he, um, what did he do? Um, he had the anime. There was this um, uh, Cobra Space Adventure. So Cobra Space Adventure was cut, was cut into the video. So that song got played to death. Um... Like, what else happened? Bjork's first album came out in 1993. So her videos got played a lot because her videos had crazy videos. Like, amazing directors. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins' Siamese Dream came out that year. Sheryl Crow's um, Tuesday Night Music Club, which was funny because that was one of the big selling points in 93 with VH1. They played a lot of Sheryl Crow, a lot of Sarah McLaughlin, um... A lot of Counting Crows. You know. So it's crazy because also. If you were watching. If you were watching like. Um, MTV or whatever. You might hear the occasional song you liked. Um, like I remember I think near my birthday. My 18th birthday. Actually no I think it was on my 18th birthday. I was watching 120 minutes. And um, the Breeders were on. If you don't know who the Breeders are. The Breeders are um a band that includes um, Kim Deal, who's from the Pixies. Pixies one of the biggest groups in Boston. They used to record in my neighborhood. Um, and 
they had a video called Cannonball, and that video really stuck out to me. It was directed by Spike Jones and um Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth. And I remember seeing that video and just being like in awe of it. I'm like, there are no rules anymore. You can do whatever you want. And again, I've st- I've talked about how uh, skate videos and a lot of the people that directed skate videos got into the, the medium of video directing and how that, again, bled into the early days, at least in the 90s, of um, independent film. And I talk about the span of 1994. I think I need to change it to 1993. So 1993 to 2000, which could be considered the golden era of music video. And the later end of that, um, 1997 going into 2000, I think that that era was dominated by um, like electronica videos. You know, stuff like um, Kelly Watch the Stars, you know, Chemical Brothers. Uh... Like uh, the video for Around the World. Like there were just so many. uh, Aphex Twin. You know. Fotech. There were just so many different videos. And I think also like. It started with the era of. um, Industrial. Like the industrial videos. Like um, Nine Inch Nails. Tool. Um, that aesthetic these are the videos that used to come on late at night in the 120 minutes era in the headbangers ball era that really like stood out but uh, one of the other things that that sparked was uh, this phenomenon before we had the peer to peer um, music sharing opportunities starting in like 99 summer 99 I believe what we used to do was we would get fake accounts and we would just stock up on CDs through either uh, Columbia House or the BMG Music Club. And it was hilarious because we knew what these song, we knew who these groups were and we knew this music again because MTV's always on, not from the radio. Back in the days we were exposed to this music to the radio. Now it was MTV. MTV served the role of the radio. And they kind of help to integrate music and and give music and expose it to people that typically wouldn't take the chance on it. So you would get your, what, 12 CDs or whatever, and you, you already got the CDs you want by number eight, number nine. So now you got three spots. And now you're like, oh, shit, um, what am I going to do? Um, you know what? Let me get Smashing Pumpkin Siamese Dream, you know? I like that Porno for Pyros song, so let me get Porno for Pyros, Porno for Pyros. You know, uh, let me take a chance on um, PJ Harvey's Rid of Me, you know. Let me take a chance on um, Liz Fair, Exile in Guyville. So the CDs come, or the tapes come, and now you have these albums that you typically wouldn't have, but you have for free. So you're going to listen to them and chances are you're going to become a fan. You're going to like what you hear. You're going to you're going to be exposed to something new. You're going to it's going to be like a gateway drug. Now you're going to want to hear something by somebody else or something along that same line. Or you're going to watch MTV 
and you're going to stumble on something else you like or another artist you like. And the funny thing is that I can't tell you that throughout the 90s, how many times I've been in somebody's car. This phenomenon happened a lot from the early 90s to the mid to late 90s. By by the end of the 90s, nobody had any shame anymore. They didn't care. Uh, so a lot of times people would try to uh, pass off that uh, rock CD or that that tape is, oh, someone left that in there or, you know, uh, I found it on the train or or it was on the bus or my little sister likes it. And I'm just like mad because, fam, just admit you like it so I can admit I like it, too. Like, God damn it. OK, so perfect example is um I don't know how many of you have watched a Netflix series. You've um you've binged it. And you're waiting for everybody else to see it so you could talk about it. Or you've seen a film and you're waiting for the timeline, if you're on Twitter, to have seen it too so you can actually discuss it openly. It's kind of like that back in the 90s with music, you know. You would hear, I don't know, um, Fiona Apple title. And you see it somewhere in somebody's house. And you're like, yo... Oh, they got this album too. And it's like, I cannot talk about this album with anybody. Please. Like, yo, Fiona Apple title. No. Criminal. The girl on MTV. Yeah, man. Was, come on, just a minute. Just a minute. Yeah, shit. I like it. You know what I'm saying? Fuck it. I'm just I'm just gonna tell the truth. I like Yo, me too. Yo, you know what song is crazy? So it's like, um that happened a lot. I think the first album that came out that everybody just came out and just said I like this album and I bought it and I don't care was uh for some odd reason a lot of people did that with um no doubts tragic kingdom I don't know why exactly I remember when I first saw the video for um I'm just a girl on MTV they played it to death it was like buzzworthy they would have videos that were buzzworthy so they played that to death it like entered the regular countdown and by the way, if you want to find what albums or what songs and entered the um the rotation and ended up being deemed buzzworthy or whatever that you want to go back and find, just find um old Billboard magazines. I've discussed this before. Find old Billboard magazines. There's this thing called the Video Report, and it will tell you every video that entered the rotation at every station, every video station. Uh, if it was going out the rotation because it is passed the new videos coming in, it just entered the rotation. If it entered a buzzworthy bin, everything. So you don't need to guess. And the sad part is that anybody who's a journalist who would actually use these um, use these resources, they've been pushed out of the game. So it doesn't really matter. So pretty much I'm telling anybody who wants to do a documentary or a book. And, yeah, that's a dog because I live in a building with other people yeah so that was one of the things that happened that kind of changed the way that we interacted with music as we went further with in the 90s with um cable that became more and more of a dominant force as to how we got how we got uh exposed to more and more music uh it's really different now because I don't 100% know 
how to explain like the difference between b- music exposure and music discovery versus now because I don't think anybody would really get it. It's kind of like when I explain to my niece and nephew about having a beeper and they just stare. So let me get this straight. You had a box with batteries in it clipped to you and then a phone number would come up and when you saw this phone number you had to go to a pay phone use change then call the number that called you well called the thing on your hip then you talk to a person or you can have an alphanumeric one where it has a message on it and you read the message But in order to respond to the person, you still have to call the number. That's stupid. And then I have to explain to him that there was no such thing as Wi-Fi. Which sometimes I wonder how in the hell, what was life like before, like life before Wi-Fi? Like, damn. (sighs) That's bananas. But yeah, um... It's really interesting when you think about how much music we used to be exposed to and all the music we loved. Like, imagine just listening to your regular radio station and hearing Dexie's Midnight Runners, Come On Eileen, you know, Berlin's No More Words. Destination Unknown by Missing Persons. Like, these were the jams. Just Got Lucky by Joe Boxers. Yes, Owner of a Lonely Heart. These are songs that, like, you could play anywhere and people would go crazy. Um, I don't know how many of you remember Paul Hardcastle's 19. But, like, that was another song that crossed over. It was really big on black radio and also on, like... Uh, everyday pop radio um, songs like The Waitresses, I Know What Boys Like which, you know, kind of pop punk but still like it was popular enough on black radio where it still gets spins I mean, Jay-Z remade it you know it's like that, that gives you an idea like, really? like you would do that? Um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood Relax, which was really, really big on black radio. And it's funny because I didn't realize it was like a pop hit. Okay, so what happened was, since everybody didn't have MTV for some odd reason, between like 1984 and 1985, uh, there were a whole bunch of video shows that came on regular television. And then, of course, Friday night videos happened. So you had video shows that came on regular, uh, regular uh, TV. So you're seeing stuff like, um, uh, what's that dude's name? Nolan something. Yo, little brother. Like yo, yo, little brother. What you out there trying to discover? Like so, like you would see those type of videos on every day. Um, I think I mentioned um, Scandal featuring Patty Smythe, um, the Warrior, and actually that's why the rant happened when I was telling you about like 80s videos, how they were so horrible. They were horrible. Trust me, they were horrible. I lived through it. And I saw a lot of them. And uh, so 
there were just so many songs like Level 42 was really big on um, black radio. Matter of fact, if you go on YouTube, you can find like when Level 42 came to the Apollo. Look at the crowd losing their minds. Something about you. You know, um, there was a I was really big into like the English beat before they um, split up and became um, general public. So the songs when they were general public were tenderness and um Where did you go so far away from me, girl? Never you done that. Don't never you go too far away from that. No, no, never you done that. And so like that was um general public, but originally, you know, they had songs like Mirror in the Bathroom, I Confess. Um You had like laid back who had White Horse, they were one hit, one hit wonder. But that song was really like funky. We used to like um, do the King Tut to that all the time. ABC with Poison Arrow and The Look of Love. Human League was big too. Human League was really big. They had songs like Don't You Want Me Baby. Um, later they had like I'm Only Human. But that's when they started fucking with um, Jam and Lewis. Again, they started messing with Jam and Lewis because again, uh, the Minneapolis sound had kind of changed pop. So, you know, they kind of needed that help. But Human League didn't have issues with trying to get on the um the hot black singles charts. I think Tony Basil's Mickey was another song that early on was, you know, really big on both charts. Um, I think a song that like well, actually an album, I think 86 it came out on um, there was new shoes poolside so the two songs on that album were point of no return and i can't wait and i don't even remember if they made a second album i honestly don't remember if they made a second album um thomas dolby she blinded me with science uh that was a huge song thomas dolby was a master of the keyboard and sense and stuff like that so um he was highly influential coming up in that era. I think everybody knows about Rick Ashley's Never Gonna Give You Up. His voice made everyone think he was a brother. And then they saw the video and said, oh shit. You know, so that happened. Um, of course, there's local boy, Billy Squire, who um, who made the jam um, big beat. A lot of people credit that song with starting a gang of rap careers. There were a lot of Boston records that came out that they used in New York and they rapped over and I remember being like wait what? What? You know when you think that yo they're rapping over the Jay Giles band they're just cutting a Jay Giles band record over and over. A live record mind you. Um or they're using Billy Squire, or aren't they cutting Aerosmith record? That's a Boston record, you know? And I don't mean a Boston record is in the records from Boston. I mean, Boston is in the band Boston. More than a feeling, Boston. And if you go back and you listen to Boston's um, first album, there are some... It's incredible that that song was really made in a studio by one guy playing all the parts, and then later he brought, it, he brought in people to be the actual band on some print shit. You know, when you just think that Prince was playing everything on those Time albums and then had Morris, baby, 
What's your phone number? And he's like, oh, no, that was a drum machine. Uh, the drum on 777-9311, I think when I was a kid, I thought that that was um, Prince playing the drums. Oh, no, actually, I didn't know it was Prince playing the drums. I didn't find that out until later somebody told me. I wasn't that smart when I was a kid. I mean, I was smart, but I wasn't that smart, not about music. And then someone had to explain, I think, uh, that it was actually a drum machine as opposed to someone playing it live. Because I thought it was somebody playing it live. Or maybe, if I have that wrong, someone tell me. Tom uh, Tom Clubs, Tom Tom Clubs, uh, Genius of Love, which was another song that, like, huge. Uh, that's some sample to death. Uh, one of my favorite uh, songs to sample that is by uh, the Boogie Monsters. Uh, they had a song called Bronx Bombers that sampled it. I don't know. I, I believe that um, this is going to be a departure, but the Boogie Monsters album, the Underwater album, is one of the most slept on and classic rap albums of the 90s. But back to what I was talking about. There was the Eurythmics and Thompson Club. No, the Thompson Twins, my bad. So there was Eurythmics and Thompson Twins. Um, Thompson Twins were pretty big. Um, what they had, so- the songs they had with um, Love on Your Side, Hold Me Now, Eurythmics. I think everybody knows the Eurythmics songs. Sweet dreams are made of these. Uh, what's another uh, classic song from the 80s that like really like was big on black radio? Ooh! Uh, Nana, 99 Luftballons. Now, here's the thing, right? There's the English version, and then there's the German version. Now, for some odd reason, when I was a kid and they used to play it on videos channels, they would love to play the English version, but I'm convinced, and and tell me if I'm the only person, the only person that, that, that thinks this way, the German version sounded better. And it's weird to say the German version sounds better because because of my time spent at Harvard when I was studying, um, I was doing that. There was this class, uh, one of the best class I've ever taken in my life was a class called um, Hitler's Wars, and it was basically breaking down um, how Hitler was the first demagogue. How the hell did I get into this talking about German? And I watched a lot of um, stock films. I watched a lot of uh, newsreels. And I watched quite a few Lenny Riefenstahl films, uh, her propaganda films. So I heard a lot of German. And it's funny because it, when you hear German, now I have to like try to remove that from the context in which the German I heard for a lot of my academic career was. Anyway. But yeah, Nana's 99 Luftballons sounds better in German than it does in English. I don't care what you gonna say about it. Um, Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. That, that song is probably one of the top five pop slash white songs on black radio um i'm pretty sure tears for fears everybody rules everybody wants to rule the world might have number one i think a lot of people might um argue that that spot actually goes to talking heads once in a lifetime 
Um, but Rock Me Amadeus by Falco, Talking Heads Once in a Lifetime, and Tears for Fears Everybody Wants to Rule the World. You know what? I'm not sure if it's Everybody Wants to Rule the World over Shout. I think it is. I think most. I don't know if most people agree that Everybody Wants to Rule the World would be over Shout. Um, I never mentioned the Go Go's. We got the beat. Maybe that's top 20. Black Radio didn't play Our Lips Are Sealed. Head Over Heels? Yeah. I do remember hearing Head Over Heels a few times. Is there anything more than David Bowie's Let's Dance that would end up here? I cannot think for the life of me. I really think the police made a gang of songs that would be, you know, on this list. I don't know if Synchronicity is one of them. Was Synchronicity? I don't think Synchronicity was hot on black radio. Don't stand so close to me. Maybe Synchronicity too. <sighs> Not sure. But um, anyway... I just looked at the I just looked at the time and the time is at 45 minutes and as I'm at 45 minutes I'm just remembering that you know Talking Heads also had Burning Down the House uh Spandau Ballet had True which was huge on black radio and I think another song that would actually be top 5 is Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill um that song got played to death not D E F Death, D-E-A-T-H. No rap spellings, the real spelling. So yeah, uh, I think I'm going to stop this one here. Uh, oh yeah, I just want to thank everybody for uh, listening to the podcast and helping to spread it and uh, rating it on iTunes, the Apple Podcasts. Uh, I didn't ask anybody to do that, and they did it. It's amazing. Uh, so far, the podcast has been added uh, a bunch of new places. Uh, today, it just got added to Radio Public. Hopefully, it gets added to Spotify. Um, it's just spreading really quickly. I'm surprised. Uh, I honestly didn't know what was going to happen. I'm enjoying it so far, and I'm not somebody who says that a lot. Uh, to everybody who sent um, voice comp, uh, voicemails and and other commentary and favorited the podcast, I just want to thank you. If I didn't get back to you, it's because I do 400 things at once. Um, but thank you. I heard it and I appreciate all the feedback. And ain't going to be a sign off. <laughs> <laughs>